Employee frustration can be difficult to diagnose. Common symptoms may include keyboard thrashing, oh. aggressive hair pulling, anxious sobbing, <laughs> and the royal I quit. If you detect one or more of these, your team may be infected with the highly contagious software frustritis. Don't panic. WalkMe's contextual guidance simplifies any software, providing an intuitive and hassle-free user experience. Everybody wins. Gets more done. Join thousands of leading enterprises that simplify their workflow with WalkMe. WalkMe. Get started now. Introducing the new era of digital identity with SoCure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why SoCure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. SoCure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, SoCure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with SoCure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit SoCure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. There's a, there's a great axiom from a guy named Chris Wong, who works in New York City um, government, or used to, I think. So he calls it Wong's Law. And it's every uh, agency has a new system that will be here in 24 to 36 months, and it will solve all of our problems. And that's kind of weirdly true, right? Like everyone thinks like, oh, well, we don't need to put in an ID verification system now because we're getting this thing that's in process and we have all of our hopes pinned on that. And, you know, whether it says ID verification or not, it is the new modern thing and we think it will work. So in the meantime, let's not do anything. And when, when you compare that approach to, for instance, what New Jersey is doing, I mentioned uh, the, the commissioner there, their approach is what can we do today that is going to make this system better? We're Progress is measured by the week and the month, not like something that may happen 12 years from now. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. My guest today, Jennifer Palka, has just quite simply written one of the best policy books I've ever read. It's called Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. And for anyone who would like to see the U.S. government become more reliable, efficient, and streamlined by deploying the best of what tech has to offer when delivering services, it's really a must-read. 
In the book, she explains that while new laws and policies are what get all of the attention, the real work starts after those changes have been passed. She writes that governments at all levels need to focus more on the difficult work of implementation, which now almost always involves using digital technology. If you don't know Jen Palka, she is the former deputy in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and she's the founder of Code for America, a nonprofit that aims to help government agencies with their tech issues. In our conversation today, we're going to talk about how industrial era culture really limits government's ability to handle the challenges of the 2020s, the gap between the promise of the digital age and actual results, and she shares lessons from her time addressing governmental failure at the local, state, and federal levels. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here for this conversation. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Before we get into some of the more um, more tactical questions, one of the things that as I was reading your book, honestly, the way you wrote it, first of all, was it, it really kind of lent itself into kind of understanding where you were, what was happening. But one of the stories that I really loved and I don't know if you've gotten this question before, but when Marina was trying to get into the office and there was a bird that was trying to keep her out, if anybody who's read this book, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop chuckling. And you went through this, you kind of passed by this pretty quickly. How long did that interaction take and how did she eventually get into the building? Yeah, it's not just a bird, it's a turkey. And if you've ever been attacked by a turkey, you know they mean business. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't with her. She called me uh, at the end of that day and was like, you wouldn't believe my day. I started <laughs> a turkey attack. Uh, she just, you know, if you know Marina Nitza, she's just sort of superhuman and just nothing daunts her. So she just kind of went back and forth until she got past this turkey at the entrance to the employment department in California. You know, I think it was about 15 or 20 minutes, but uh, she's just completely uh, fearless. <laughs> I think, I think as you told that story in the book, it, for me, as I went through the rest of that chapter, I realized that was just the start of all the challenges you were going to have once she got there. So it's probably a, a perfect way for her to kick off her role in task force. But um, one of the questions that as we as we jump into this I, again before we get to the book, I want to talk a little bit about your time at Code for America, and I'm curious to know what inspired you to found that organization. And it, I, I'll tell you full disclosure, my my wife and a lot of listeners know this. She is a, a STEAM educator, STEM educator, uh, an engineer by trade. I know coding is really important to her, especially kind of influencing and exposing the younger generation to it. So I know it, it has a lot of, of value from everything from children all the way to adult. But from, from your vantage point, what was an inspiration for you to found that, that organization? Well, I was working in the, the tech media business. In fact, my sort of first big long-term adult job was running the video game conference called uh, Game Developers. And... Um, I left after I had my child and went back to be running something called Web 2.0. So that used to be a big thing. <laughs> you have to be more <laughs> my age to remember that. But um, running Web 2.0, we were putting these sort of very you know young or uh, companies like Facebook and Google on stage to talk about how the web had was coming back after the dot com crash. 
And so it was the, really the, the heyday of this sort of lightweight, very user-centered, new kind of interaction online that these companies were making possible. And, um, you know, after the first couple of years of it, it was really interesting. It became very dominated by big brands. And a bunch of us were like, you know, what is the best and highest use of the principles and values of Web 2.0. It's 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 not the it's not consumer tech. It's government. You know, government is the thing that's for us and by us. And you know, when we're talking about things like user generated content, things that we own, uh, that that is you know that is where we realized it would have the most impact. And so I started working on a brand called Gov 2.0, and that's where I got inspired. Um, to, to do Code for America because I had a friend, uh, my best friend from childhood's husband was the chief of staff for the mayor of Tucson. And he kept saying, you know, how do you get these, these folks that are making things like Facebook and Google and Twitter to instead, you know, come make an app for Tucson city government. It's going to take me five years through the procurement process to do this. You guys could do that so quickly. And that's where I, you know, that was that moment when I said we we could actually get people to do a year of service, you know, inspired by Teach for America. Let's do a service year, but for tech folks working in local government. And that was the beginning of my journey, really learning, not just from the perspective of someone building a conference, but, you know, um, what it's actually like to work in local government and, and, and all levels of government. And boy, did I learn a lot from that moment forward. <laughs> That's really interesting. I feel like over the past few years, even before the pandemic, obviously the pandemic, I think really accelerated this, but I feel like there's been uh, a closer relationship between the private sector and the public sector. Do you think it's because of organizations like this and others? I know there's some out there like decode that, that Megan Metzger found and others. I think, for me, I think they they really have kind of helped bridge that gap. But what do you think? Oh, I think that, I mean, if you compare back to when I was starting Code for America, which was like 2010, yes, there's hugely more interest from tech in government and from government in tech. And while there's still a big gap, there's still a lot of misunderstanding, it's gotten less. Um and I think both sides sort of are better at knowing what they don't know and finding the common language to understand each other. It, it's a much better environment now. Yeah, during your time there, that's when you got asked to join government as uh, the deputy chief technology officer for the U.S. What made you accept that position, especially since you were making such a big impact from outside of government? You said you, you've learned a lot, but what, what was the catalyst for you accepting that role? At first, I did not accept. Um, uh, you have a uh, listeners can't see this, but you have a banner over your uh, your seat here that says "Family is everything." Um, I had a daughter, and I lived in California, and it seemed extremely impractical for me to to go um, to Washington D.C. Um, and so, for a long time, I told Todd Park, who was at CTO at the time. I'd really like to help advise you. I'd really like to help you find the right people. I am not the right person. I'm also not technical. So I have um, a strong sense of what I don't know too and, and where I lack skills. But ultimately, um, you know, in fact, one of his colleagues said to me, I know you're saying no now, but we are like water on stone. We will wear you down, <laughs> which is indeed what happened. But I would say that here I was running Code for America, 
my job was to get people to come work in government, you know, at least through a fellowship program who hadn't previously considered it. And it was a bit hypocritical of me to say, here's my opportunity to go serve and I'm going to turn it down. Um, and then ultimately, um, Todd said, look, it's actually quite valuable that you're in California. You can spend half of your time there. And, um, you know, that felt like it was sort of a balance with my commitment to my family and commitment to public service that, you know, was never easy. <laughs> um, but I'm glad I did it. I mean, I really wouldn't change that part of my life for the world, even though it did, you know, take a toll. Um, as much as I had been working with these um, programmers and designers who were moving largely from tech into government for a year, and I could hear and feel their frustrations and their excitement and their the meaning, like all the good and bad of public service. Um, I would not be the person I am today if I hadn't actually been a public servant for a year and walked in the shoes of public servants. It's so easy to judge and it is so hard to do that job. Um, and so I, I, you know, I can't imagine a world in which I didn't say yes to that in the end, despite its challenges. And, you know, I, um, People have, have remarked upon the dedication of the book, Recoding America. It's dedicated to public servants everywhere. Don't give up. And that's because, you know, I know from personal experience and from, you know, the succeeding 10 years of working with public servants, really how hard this job is. Was there, did you have any preconceived notions before you went in? that you were surprised by, whether good or bad? I, I know a lot of us that are outside of government and even work with government understand the bureaucracy that goes into it. Sometimes things seem to be slow and, and challenging for good reason. But were there any surprises that you had, both good and bad, once you accepted the role? You know, I really should not have been surprised, but I think I'm a continuously optimistic person. Um, and you know, Todd had asked me to come run the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, but I kind of reversed pitched him on creating an American version of the government digital service. It turned out that others like Dan Tagalini, who was leading GSA at the time, had had, you know, not just him, but, you know, many had had a sort of a similar idea. And so to me, it felt like I was coming in to stand up this unit not realizing that I was coming in to still continue to sell the unit. Like it was absolutely not a foregone conclusion that it would happen. And it was, you know, for quite a long time happening very slowly. So I, um, again, you know, that shouldn't have been a surprise. Things don't move quickly in government, but I had this uh, ticking clock. I had a year long leave of absence from the board of code for America. And, you know, my deal was if I stayed a year and a day, they would hire a new executive director and it would become someone else's baby and uh, I needed to go back. So I, I had a lot of urgency <laughs> and uh, I had to learn to match my urgency to the pace of government and also just get, find ways to speed up the process of doing what I'd come there to do. Um, so that, that was one big learning. <laughs> you said you had to sell the, the service. What were some of the value propositions that you were kind of pushing on some of the stakeholders to get accepted? Well, I think that one of the things that I learned is that um, you've really got to look at things through other people's eyes. There was a lot of assumptions that I had about what it was, you know, to me, it was 
obvious that we needed some digital expertise in the White House. You know, there's there's also this question of where it was going to be. Was it going to be at GSA? Was it going to be in the White House? And people know now that we got it in both places. We had 18F and what became you know TTS at GSA, and we have USDS at in in the White House. Um, but what I think I failed to understand really that there is a sort of a longstanding tradition of not having not just digital but implementation roles at all or imp- implementation exp- expertise in the White House. And, um, you know, ultimately I had to, to, to understand why there was that resistance and be able to convince them that, you know, what the White House cares about is policy. But I was asking for this unit because ultimately, as I think we can see today, the best policies are nothing without their implementation. And we had entered into an era where implementation was increasingly threatened. And the ACA was a great example of it. You know, whatever you think about the ACA, I think if you're leading a country and you get a signature policy initiative through an incredibly difficult legislative process and an incredibly, you know, fraught political environment, you don't want to lose it then because the website doesn't work. And, you know, ultimately, I think the failure of healthcare.gov was a big reason we ended up succeeding standing up this unit because it became clear that there were other policies coming down, some of them actually far more bipartisan, like I don't, people may not remember, that was a time when we still thought we would have bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform. Mm-hmm. And if we were going to lose that, to implementation, which I think we would have, to be honest. I mean, we were learning and getting better, but there was still a long way to go, you know, to to lose something that both parties at the time really wanted, even though it ended up not happening, because we didn't have an understanding of the systems that would implement that policy. You know, I think think that became increasingly unacceptable and, and it should be. So I think that's how we succeeded in the end. That's a great segue to get into your book, because really, um, for those that haven't read it, it it really sits at the intersection of policy and implementation, which is such an important um, topic. And it was became so obvious to me once once I picked it up and started reading. One of the main themes of the book really is around trying to center those two objectives around the citizen. You mm-hmm. have you have these programs that. Y- you, and you talk about it a lot during the book, you have these programs that, that mean, um, that they mean the best as they're trying to drive, as they're, they're trying to drive these programs forward, but they really don't think about the citizen ahead of time and what the implementation needs to be to really Mm -hmm. drive, uh, drive a meaningful impact, a meaningful outcome. And I know in, in, at the end of 2021 and the Biden administration pushed out this executive order around customer experience. And I think that has started to move the needle a little bit around centering around the citizen. But my question to you is why do you think it's taken so long to be, for this to become the norm when it commercially, it's been something that for a long period of time has just been prerequisite to rolling out applications. I'm not sure it is the norm yet, but certainly the executive order and many other things are pushing it to be more the norm. Um, uh, yeah, if you're building a consumer application, engagement from consumers is the measure of your success. Um, uh, 
in government, as you say, you know, people come into government to serve the public, and that's ultimately what they want to do. I, I've really yet to meet a public servant who, at least at some level, wasn't driven by that. Um, but then you come in and you told that your job is to ensure compliance with this procedure, not or this process, or you know, maybe this regulation, not to sort of pull back and say, wait, what did this legislation or this program intend to do? Because generally it does intend to serve a user, um, but we define success very differently. And, you know, the folks in the government digital service in the UK started this language of, you know, we end up meeting government needs, not user needs. Your, your job is to get a lot of stuff done, not to be thoughtful about what deciding what to actually do in the first place. And I talk in the book about that difference between project management, which I value very highly, you know, being the art of getting things done and product management being the art of deciding what to do. That deciding what to do is where you say, wait a minute, the most important thing to do is the thing that's going to work for the user. But, you know, we've had bazillion project managers in government for a long time and God bless them because they do amazing work and they do a lot of work. But we haven't had this idea of product management. We haven't had that job role often. We haven't, we're fighting hard now to make sure that it's something you can hire for and you can hire for well. Um, and, and just, it needs to be someone's job to do that. And I think we're making a lot of progress with that. But, you know, it comes back to, I think people will generally do their jobs in government quite well. So what is it that we're asking them to do? Because they're going to perform quite well at whatever that is. And if that job is very clearly understand user needs, meet those user needs, and oh, by the way, you're going to have to comply with some stuff along the way. But the main thing is to meet the user needs and, you know, um, and get that compliance done as a sort of second order effect. They're going to do that. So we're in a long process of redefining what people's jobs really are. From a storytelling point of view, I, I think you do a really good job in the book of, of really illustrating that. And, and one of my favorite chapters of the book was Concrete Boat. And I think this illustrates mm -hmm. it perfectly. Um, there's a phrase that was used uh, where they said, if they ask us to build a concrete boat, we're going to build a concrete boat. When in actuality, what will deliver outcomes isn't a concrete boat. And there is no pushback. Um, you, there was also another quote that you put in there from Generally Stan, General Stanley McChrystal, which I think was great. And I had never heard it before until then. And I thought it was a, a great one where he mm -hmm. says, follow the orders I would have given if I was there, not the orders I gave. Right? right. Because you're, because as you go down the chain and you get further into the, if you want to call it the implementation, you need to have strong critical thinking skills. And I also think it, it's about a culture, right? You need to yes. build a, if, if you want to call it a kind of a decentralized command type of culture where you understand what you're trying to get to. And we need to make the right decisions down that chain of command to make sure that we're getting to those outcomes. In your opinion, how do you develop that type of culture? Yeah, maybe it's helpful to explain, you know, give an example, not just of the sort of risk-averse public servant who says, I'm going to build a concrete boat if they ask mm -hmm. me to build a concrete boat, but also of one who follows McChrystal's advice beautifully. So later in the book, I talk about a career public servant at CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, 
who is around, you know, she's she's fantastic IT project manager, healthcare.gov hits. She gets pulled into the rescue effort for the site, um, is one of those really unsung heroes, you know, where, where credit went to a lot of places outside CMS, but it was people like her in CMS who were so critical in, in getting healthcare.gov running again. And, and through that, she learns the framework of, I think some stuff she was already really doing like agile development and, you know, focus on a user and um, product management really, really critically. And following out of that now has some tools to really change her part of that organization. And so when the next law, MACRA, Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act, comes down from Congress, she's determined, she and others, are determined to not have a, an outcome like that. Um, and she knows that like the site they're going to build to implement MACRA not only you know needs to stay up and serve more than eight people a day, as HealthCareDecov unfortunately did its first day, um, but it needs to make sense to doctors. That's who's going to use this one. You already have doctors so frustrated with the ways they're asked to engage with Medicare that they're on the verge of revolt. They're going to leave the program, which will hurt mm-hmm. the quality of care, not improve it, which that's you know, that's Congress's intent. Let's improve the quality of care with value-based care. And so she starts doing exactly what McChrystal says, which is, you know, I hear that you want me to do X, but I know that that will achieve a a poor outcome. So, you know, for instance, they're saying um, the law exempts doctors who take very few Medicare patients, but we'll determine that exemption after the end of the first year, which means that doctors are going to have to invest in new HR systems. They're going to have to train their staff. They're going to have to understand this whole program for an entire year only to be exempted at the end of it, which is an enormous burden on, say, a sole practitioner in a rural area. And she just doesn't take no for an answer. She tells the folks above her, that's not the right thing. That's not honoring congressional intent. It's not going to help the people. It's not going to help the doctors. Um, And she ultimately wins that battle and other battles and, you know, really you know, continues to do that in in other areas. Uh, You know, after that, she's asked to do quarterly data dumps of pharmaceutical data and says, no, a better way to do that is to create an API, an application programming interface. Um, And she goes about doing that, which is literally not, you know, technically honoring the words that Congress wrote, but far better honoring Congress's intent. Um, so she herself, you know, uses a crisis to create that culture. And unfortunately, I think crisis is one way that we get to that culture. Um, but she, you know, she's also um, modeling for other people what to do. So she's, you know, she's bold in this sort of product management framework. Let's decide what to do before we just go do everything Congress has told us to do. Um but she's also incredibly team oriented, incredibly humble, incredibly focused on building the people around her. So, you know, I think one way that you see this culture develop is uh, the leadership becomes a little bit less risk averse because they know that risk aversion is how they got into crisis in the first place. It's met uh, that top down support is met from both the bottom up and also, you know, the 
faith by the people in the middle of the organization that if a McChrystal says, like, do what I would do if I knew what you knew, that 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 they can believe that, that they're going to get backed, that, you know, so they can see that someone like Yadira did what McChrystal said and not only wasn't punished for it, but was rewarded for it. So, I mean, I think ultimately you're trying to just keep reframing the question. If you assume that public servants are always trying to do the right thing, how do you how do you frame what's really the right thing that's not about this little the the exact words of this regulation or this rule or this process or procedure that's in front of you but pull it back up to what is this program trying to achieve in this case it's trying to get better care for medicaid uh, patients if you can pull it back up you start to create a culture in which people like yadira really thrive how do you think if you, if you put your leadership hat on how do you think that leaders can identify change agents like that within their organization that are going to help them really truly drive outcomes? I think you've just got to spend the time. I mean, I th- you know, it is very hard to be a leader of an organization. You're pulled in a lot of different directions. And typically you have staff telling you, this is what you're going to do on Monday. This is what you're going to do on Tuesday. I mean, I see it mm-hmm. all the time, right? And you have to take control of that and say, I need to spend some of my time, perhaps at the expense of something else, sitting with the teams and really understanding how they're making decisions. Great example of this, and I wrote about it recently in the Washington Post, and this isn't federal government, but New Jersey state government, the the commissioner of labor there, a guy named Rob Asaro Angelo, who helped the labor agency get through the unemployment insurance crisis in, you know, in COVID, like really quite well, you know, it was not easy, nothing was perfect. But he said, no, I'm going to spend time with this team. And he got to see who his leaders were, including a fantastic leader of modernization named Jillian Gutierrez, um, and got to say, like, you know, he's in the meetings that I think his peers would not bother to be in to really make sure he is able to block and tackle, to clear out obstacles, you know, in real time, get them back, but also learn that someone like Jillian is worth backing and ultimately say to folks, here's a leader who is thinking like I'm thinking or thinking how I would think if I knew what she knew. I've got, she's my proxy and, you know, pushes power down the organization, but it does take time and you have to take control of your schedule to have enough time to find those leaders and really trust them and empower them. As we're talking about leaders, you made an assertion at the beginning of the book that really carries through um, as another theme throughout the rest of it, uh, talking about how impactful people need to be closer to policy, mm-hmm. but in the d- dichotomy is they're they're really trying to further themselves from mm-hmm. it. How do you think that we could change that moving forward? There's sort of a class structure in government, particularly in DC, that says policy is the important thing and implementation is less important. And um, I really, you know, I felt that when I was there, you know, in in that sort of battle to get USDS stood up that I that I talked about earlier, and I saw it in the history that I researched in doing the book. Uh, in 1995, when Klinger and Cohen were uh, had introduced the Klinger Cohen, what be, you know, what became the Klinger Cohen Act, they actually at that time asked the White House Office of Management and Budget, you know, sort of one of the most powerful places in 
in all of U.S. government, perhaps the most powerful place to take a lead, you know, to be the lead on digital strategy. And like, think back to 1995. I mean, this was when the internet was starting to become mature. You started to see, you know, the glimpses of the world we live in today where, you know, technology is not just like another, like, you know, now we do word processing on computers instead of typing. Like it, it started to become, you know, we're buying things online where media is happening online. It was still, it was really transformational. And, um, OMB said at the time, no, thank you. Um, that's, uh, quote unquote, operational in nature and inconsistent with the policy role of this institution. In other words, and I'm being a little bit unfair here, but I'll exaggerate to make a point. In other words, we're a very high status organization. Don't put anything implementation oriented you know, near us because it's just a distraction to, to more important work. And I think, you know, I think that attitude absolutely is changing. I also, you know, understand why that's come about. There's political risk in being attached to implementation, but I think there's political risk to not paying attention to more political risk um, to ignoring implementation. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that we need to do to shift that, that sort of, you know, putting distance between your, if, if you have a lot of power in government, you want to put your, di you know, put distance between yourself and implementation is that, you know, those of us involved in implementation and certainly because so much in implementation now involves technology or digital or design, um, we can make it worse by sort of coming to the table with a, Fancy pants, um, you know, but we're the digital people. We understand things that you don't and really make people in policy feel stupid or sort of out of their depth when talking about tech. And this is extremely destruct destructive. Um, later in the book, again, this team at CMS, you know, where Yadira Sanchez works, this, this team led by Yadira, you know, you have the policymakers and the implementers coming together. And they're coming together not around you know, code or tech jargon, but around sticky notes on the wall. So you have these, you know, these folks in, in charge of the implementation saying, let's get everybody in a room and let's take all the, the pieces of the policy that these you know, disparate policy teams at CMS have written and map out what we're asking of doctors and see where all the um, dependencies are. And when you put them on sticky notes on the wall, you start to see that there's actually some problems in those dependencies. We're asking doctors for a decision uh, in January, but we're not giving them the data that they need to make that decision until three months later in March. Okay, that's a problem. Now, these are tools of implementers and they're tools of digital teams that aren't off-putting. They're demystifying of the process that implementers use. Everybody likes sticky notes on walls, or at least they're not intimidated by sticky notes on walls or markers. You know, they painted the wall of this hallway at CMS with whiteboard paint and started showing the policy team you know, you're asking doctors to make, you know, they have 10 different options at this point. And then each of those 10 different options has 10 different options. And then each of those 10 has different. And you immediately see that in the service of giving them flexibility, you've created something that's so complex, it can really never be implemented well. 
And that's, a you know, it's like markers on walls where you have t- policy people. I mean, these are lower level policy people for sure, but you start to see the policy people and the implementation people have a common language and a common ground and they're working really well together. You know, that collapses those differences, but we, ha- the implement implementers have to make implementation a space where policymakers can learn. The policymakers need to see that, you know, that they gain new tools in their tool belts when they step into that space, you know, not that they get, you know, uncomfortable and, uh, and sort of go back to that, that space of, of getting distanced. I think, I mean, that, that story really illustrates something that we talk about on the show a lot which is when it comes to modernization or digital transformation, for the most part, it's really a people conversation. The technology mm-hmm. is really secondary to all that. Um, I, you had a, a story that you talked about in the book when you were on the task force uh, at California EDD, which I think illustrates that really well. Uh, and I was hoping you could share that with the listeners where um, you and Marina really found that one of the challenges was really around hiring. And how long it took to get people up to speed, sometimes, spoiler alert, 17 years, but (laughs) to to get people up to speed to be able to kind of drive value within the organization. Can you talk to our listeners about that story and Mm -hmm. how you were able to kind of overcome that? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of lessons about people and, and, and talent and capacity in government when during this. So this is during the pandemic, sort of the end of July, I think that first summer when you'd had, you know, uh, tens of millions of people lose their jobs and need support um, through unemployment insurance, some of them desperately, but all states accrued a backlog because their UI system, unemployment insurance systems just, uh, you know, we say they weren't designed to carry that load. I would say, in fact, they weren't designed at all. Um, and when when Marina was talking with one of these claims processors who said, you know, I'm the new guy. I'm not sure how to answer that question. I'm the new guy. And she finally asked him, how long have you been here? And he said, you know, only 17 years. The people who really know the policy and the process <laughs> and the regulations that govern, govern UI have been here for 25 years or more. You know, that is really... I think the illustration of how these systems just accrue and accrete over time. They're they're not designed. They've they've they're like sediment has built up over time. Um, and that's what you're working with, something that takes 25 years to, to learn. So the that meant that while the state was had just you know opened up the pocketbooks, we also had, I think, federal aid at that point to the states to hire people. And we had 5,000 new workers who had been assigned to just help these um, experienced claims processors with their decades of experience. Um, in fact, every new person the state hired at that time was slowing down processing because these 25-year veterans had to onboard and answer email from and you know give permissions in the system to 5,000 people who really had stood no chance of helping out. Now, there were things they could do, like there were piles and piles of unopened mail. And one of the ways that we cleared the backlog was just helping EDD make a plan for assigning staff more rationally. Of course, it looks like you should give the people with all the knowledge all the help they need, but what they needed to be 
They needed to be completely undistracted from doing the one thing only they could do, which was process complicated claims that needed manual processing that needed, especially those that needed ID verification. Um, and so it's just, you know, we were doing the exact opposite thing that was making the situation worse in, instead of better because nobody at that point had had the ability to pull back and look and see from a systems perspective, wait, as you add people, productivity is declining. Um, so, so that's one lesson is, you know, just the complexity of the law and policy that governs this makes it unscalable. Um, and, that you know, when it's that unscalable, adding people is not helpful. The other lesson I learned is that, you know, when we went and told the head of EDD at the time that we found this out, that the data supported this, um, this understanding, um, she really didn't want to tell the state legislature or the governor's office because that's what they had been asking her to do. That's what they believed was the answer, all this hiring. And that's what they had told the press the answer was. And so she was really stuck in this system that, you know, I, I call it kind of a waterfall system because she's not allowed to push insights back up the waterfall. It just all kind of flows down on on her. And, you know, that's just a system that is extremely hard to operate in. Um, I guess just, you know, quickly, the, sort of the third lesson I think from that is that when we pulled back at the end of it and said, you know, where are we leaving this, this organization? One of my observations was that there was only a handful of people who actually knew how the total system worked. There is no system. There's a sort of a conglomeration aggregation of systems that have been created over, you know, since the eighties on the technology and since 1935 on the policy. And, uh, you know, Marina said to me, no, there's not a handful of people who know how the system works. There's, handful of people who know how a part of the system works and nobody who knows how the whole system works together in part because we have outsourced so much. We have said like, if we just keep giving huge mega contracts to contractors, it can be their job to know how this system works. And I, I don't think that's fixed. I mean, California EDD is about to spend another billion dollars on modernization but I don't know that they have fixed that problem of the internal capacity that's needed to get a billion dollars of value out of that spend. So you mentioned the backlog, and that's kind of what you as a task force were tasked to come in and, and help solve and, and help uh, reduce. And in large part, this is built up to what, what are called recomps, um, which are kind of the manual reviews and you and the team were able to solve that by recommending the procurement of a digital identity verification solution, which also kudos in that you were able to implement this in seven weeks, which is astounding, especially in the culture that you described in the book. But oh, let, let me be very clear. It was the California Department of Technology and EDD that did that fast implementation. They deserve all the credit. We just recommended that they do it. Well, and, and when I heard seven weeks in my head, I was just thinking that's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. but, but my really. thought is this, this seems to be the type of technology that it, since it is available commercially should be, should have been deployed pre pandemic to support this program, let alone the accelerated influx of, uh, unemployment mm -hmm. insurance claims that were put in. 
Why do you think government tends to be more reactive uh, rather than proactive in their approaches, like with a solution like digital identity? Well, this is a good example, I think, of a general principle. EDD did have a BSM, uh, Business System Modernization Project, in the works when COVID hit. Um, it did not ask for identity verification as a core um, element of it. Um, its goal simply was modernization, which doesn't mean anything, uh, in my view. You have to have actual performance yeah. goals. Um, but, you know, government's going to be reactive because they're constantly playing a 12-year-old game. So that BSM had been in development for 11 years when COVID had hit. They started developing requirements for that, you know, over 11 years ago. And um, that's what they were focused on is getting something already massively outdated even begun, right? They were about to take it out for bid. So it's not even like they were starting to develop it. They were about to take it out for bid. So there would have been the whole bidding process. There would have been a protest likely, you know, they wouldn't even started, you know, developing it. You know, so I think to me, um, it gets back to that, you know, incredibly long waterfall process. Um, you, and just the reality that if you take 12 years to even start a project, and then that project would have been delivered in, say, another 12 years, you will deliver something that is 24 years out of date. Um, there's, there's a great um, axiom from a guy named Chris Wong, who works in New York City um, government, or used to, I think. Uh, so he calls it Wong's Law. And it's um, every uh, agency has a new system that will be here in 24 to 36 months, and it will solve all of our problems. And that's kind of weirdly true, right? Like everyone thinks like, oh, well, we don't need to put in an ID verification system now because we're, we're getting this thing that's in process and we have all of our hopes pinned on that. And, you know, whether it says ID verification or not, it is the new modern thing and we think it will work. So in the meantime, let's not do anything. And, you know, when, when you compare that approach, which is just like all our money is on a huge modernization to, for instance, what New Jersey is doing. I mentioned uh, the, the commissioner there, his approach and his team's approach and the Office of Innovation in New Jersey, which was started by a predecessor of mine in the White House, Beth Novick, their approach is what can we do today and next week and next month that is going to make this system better that we can do with the resources we have. It may, it will include contractors, but smaller contractors with smaller contracts where progress is measured by the week and the month, not like something that may happen 12 years from now. And to, to do that, you have to value your operating expense first and then, then think about your capital expense, that big contract out. I'm, I'm very pro capital expense, but when it is met, you know, preceded by the right operational expense, the right people in-house to do it. And so, you know, yes, we will always be reactive when we think only in terms of operating, uh, only in terms of capital expense, um, when we accept 25-year timelines for modernization, and when we accept modernization as the goal for a project instead of, um, you know, a performance goal, like this will need to operate in a world in which we have 10 times as many claimants 
as we have today, which is absolutely what we should have planned for, given that unemployment insurance is designed to meet the needs of economic cycles. Being on the the commercial side of things, I'm always curious, how do you think the private sector can help educate and support the public sector to get into a more proactive posture? Obviously, we we Mm -hmm. have a responsibility on the commercial side to try to help them get ahead of things, but doing so in an ethical way. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes the most sense from from the vantage point of the commercial sector? Um, I see a lot of contractors whose goal not just is to you know fulfill requirements, but to help their partners do what Yadira Sanchez did, you know, to be product managers to honor you know what will I think we'll coin now McChrystal's law. Uh, <laughs> um, and I see contractors who also are very determined to leave the agency better than they found it or the you know the city or the state or whatever um, by building their internal capacity. So, you know, there's a kind of contracting that says, we've got this, we're your one, cho- uh, one throat to choke. Um, you can blame us if it doesn't go well slash when it doesn't go well. Um, and um, at least you'll be able to say you spent a lot of money, you tried as hard as you could. Um, but, you know, don't worry, we've got this whole thing. We're going to develop all of your requirements or, you know, one contractor is going to develop all your requirements. One other, another contractor maybe is going to deliver on all of them. Um, and then there's a kind of contractor that says, no, we need you to really be our partner. You, we need you to be like, you know, Commissioner Ansaro Angelo in, in New Jersey is like in the meeting. Now, obviously, you're not going to be commissioner in the meeting, but you, we need a good um, uh, a good product owner within the leadership of the agency that is uh, commissioning this in order to do what we need. You know, we need the expertise of your business people because we're going to be making changes all the way along. We're not going to do this 12 year thing where we're delivering 24 years from now on something, you know, that's already outdated. Um, and they're, uh, they're, they're helping train up their people, whether it's on product management or user research or even, or even, you know, even the actual technical skills need to deliver on this. And, you know, one thing I see in those contractors is that um, they consider it a win when one of their staff members goes into the agency and takes a full-time job helping this thing, you know, succeed over the long term. Um, And they don't just, you know, steal people from the agency, you know, to go make more money at the contractor. But they really genuinely want to leave every client better than they started. They're building their capacity instead of sort of infantilizing them and making them more and more dependent on them as the contractor. I think that's right. And I've kind of coined it as kind of wanting to jump in the foxhole with them to kind of steal a kind of a military analogy, but being willing to, to be in the battle, jump in the foxhole, take the fire just like they are and, and want to solve the same challenges they're trying to solve right with them. Right. And in the I, middle of the have, challenges. Yeah. And I have talked to um, career public servants who have been sort of trained in this role of product owner, which is, you know, related to product management and, and kind of different from the traditional like program person in charge that's deferential to the contracting officers and not really involved. And these public servants just light up when they talk about being product owners and how they learn to do that well and how satisfying and meaningful it is for them to engage with the delivery team in that way. And, you know, so much of this depends on how people feel, right? 
And when I see people in public service feeling great about their jobs, I just, I think like that's the future. That's what we've got to have more of. Jennifer, I have I've one final question before I give you an opportunity to leave some final thoughts. As I was getting into your book and, and you are so uh, so detail-oriented with the stories that you're telling, it's so descriptive, my brain just went to, I, this must have been so much research and so challenging as you went into the process of writing this book. So could you take the listeners behind the scenes really quickly around what the process looked like for you to, to get this book written and published and out there? I so appreciate this question. You're the first one to ask it. And it's like, you know, I'll, I guess I'll uh, be a little vulnerable because it was not easy. <laughs> um, I stepped down from Code for America just before the pandemic, just, you know, totally coincidentally, I, I had planned to leave in order to write the book. Um, of course, when the pandemic hit, I immediately started helping with code response through what became the United States digital response. That's not USDS. It's a nonprofit that lets tech talent volunteer with government to solve immediate problems. And it's a fantastic organization. I'm now on the board of it. But so first interruption was, you know, COVID response. Um, second interruption was also COVID response was working with the state on, um, on the unemployment insurance backlog um, and, you know, and there were others. So, so first of all, it was, it was not exactly like, okay, now go write a book. Oh, I'm writing a book. But of course, some of that stuff turned into informing the book, like the first three chapters of it. Um, I really, really enjoyed doing the research. So I thought like, oh, I have something to say. I'm going to sit down and write a book. And instead I sat down and did like several hundred hours of interviews with people in which I learned a lot and got to think about my own experience through the lens of others. And I, that was just amazing for me. I loved that. I loved actually writing the stuff up. What I was really terrible at was structuring it. It's just, it's sort of arbitrary how you tell a story in what order with what lesson being attached to which story. Cause at the end of the day, kind of most stories tell most lessons. And that really like hit me. It hit my confidence really hard. Cause I thought I was good at writing and it turned out to be really terrible at part of it. So I had to get really humble and like push through and and like almost gave up a couple of times. And it was really hard because my editors wanted me to, you know, make the stories very simple, of course, but it means that you cut people out. Yeah. Like you can't have a cast of 12 characters telling one story. In reality, if you were there, it's not one person who did all these things. Like Yadira gave me a terrible, terrible time understandably about focusing on her because she wanted everyone to know that it was her team. It was her team. It, you know, she didn't get the credit. She wanted her team to get the credit, but you can't, you can't write a book that's, you know, not an accurate history so much as like a, you know, popular accessible book if you include everybody. So that was just emotionally hard, I think on all of us. Um, but, you know, I got through it and I'm, I'm really glad I did but there were times I almost <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate you being vulnerable and answering that question and, and really congratulations on the book because, again, I, I thought it was fantastic. And I, I, as a lot of my listeners know, I like to geek out on this stuff. And finally, there's a book that I could kind of dive into and really geek out at the same time. Um, so I appreciate you giving me that opportunity. And as we wrap up, any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience? 
I guess ultimately I would, I would want to leave your listeners with, you know, their sense of responsibility in changing government's culture. Um, I don't know who to attribute this to. I think I heard it from my friend, Eric Liu, but he says, you know, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. <laughs> it's it's very easy to be frustrated with the, uh, you know, slow moving bureaucracy when, when you're trying to get something done. But we all play a role in the environment in which we work. I think we all have that responsibility. I mean, I did write the book, though, to point the finger a bit at others, um, our elected leaders, um, you know, uh, leaders in the executive branch, and ultimately, like the general public, like we have to hold government accountable to different things. We have to hold our elected leaders accountable to different things. So the book is about sort of pushing that responsibility a little bit further out as I think it needs to be pushed. But for, for this audience, I would say, you know, what is your role? When do you have an opportunity to be a Yadira and, you know, follow McChrystal's um, uh, orders in, in, instead of uh, being very literal about things? And, you know, can you take it? And and not just in pushing back in, on orders, in building teams and encouraging others to take those risks. So, um, you know, how can we how can we all be part of this? Because it's not going to work just to blame others. And I, um, I hope that anyone listening takes the time when they see somebody taking a risk in the service of, you know, the public good to thank and encourage and support that other public servant who's doing that. We just need a lot more of that. Yeah, I, I think anybody listening, whether you're kind of a leader or whether you're just a member of a team out there doing yeoman's work, I, I hope you either understand and, and find your voice and be willing to kind of push back and and use your wisdom to do so. And as a leader, I, I hope you're you're listening to this thinking, I I, I want to create a culture that allows that and wants my wants my team to be able to speak their mind and provide the the type of wisdom that they've been hired for. So that to me ultimately is what is going to drive value, whether it's in government or the private sector, it's that type of culture that I think we need more of. So Jennifer, thank you again for joining. Uh, Again, congratulations on the book. It's Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. It's available on Amazon, um, Audible, or wherever you uh, mostly get your books. So Thank you again for joining us today. This has been a a really fun conversation. Thank you so much, Brian. And I'll just also add, if you want to go to recodingamerica.us, there's more information there about all the stuff that's in the book. Excellent. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittastray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.